Lord. All right. Well, I, I just want to say a huge thank you. Yeah, you know, you know, every week we get people all over doing things, making things, setting this up, running things in the back, doing things to make this service uh, ushering and, and on security and medical team, making sure that, that you can have uh, the best possible uh, worship experience while you're here, that you don't have to worry about those things. Uh, um, and this morning I'm going to have to prevail upon uh, Margaret up in the booth. She's fantastic. Amen. She is amazing. All the people in the booth are amazing. we got Brian, the sound man of God up there uh, doing sound, and Emmett always doing the video. But, but we've been changing around some of our equipment, and so... With that comes equipment challenges, and so I'm going to have to I'm going to have to do this right there. And that, when I do that, Margaret's going to change slides. Well, I didn't mean it like that. I was that, that, it wasn't loaded. It wasn't loaded when I did that. All right, all right, it's loaded now. So, uh, um, but that's what's going to we're going to do that with the sermon this morning. Hallelujah. Uh, for the for the last several weeks, I have personally been kind of pouring through a number of things. But one of the things I've been pouring through the last several weeks has been the Book of Philemon, uh, a very small, often overlooked. Uh, a book in uh, the New Testament, and I've got to be honest with you, I have become captivated, fascinated uh, by this particular book. It is Paul's shortest letter, consisting of just 335 words in, uh, in the original Greek text. Uh, but to be honest with you, 335 words is way more than I would normally read to get us going, but I want to read the letter to you as we get started this morning. So would you stand with me, please, as you're able to do that? And I'm just going to read to you Paul's letter to Philemon to get us going here today. Uh, This is what the Bible says. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced." Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest house for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. 
Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Hallelujah. We want to get this morning to the meat, the heart, the core of this letter, but let me just give you a little bit of background very quickly uh, initially. Onesimus had been a household servant or slave of a man by the name of Philemon. And apparently sometime before this, he had stolen from Philemon and run away. While on the lamb, he had encountered the apostle Paul who led him to faith in Jesus Christ. And since coming to faith in Christ means surrendering your life to him as Lord, Paul apparently explained to Onesimus that he had to go back and make things right with Philemon, which frankly for a runaway slave was a very precarious proposition, since in the Roman Empire at that time the penalty for his crime could be death. To help then with this particular situation and to continue instructing the people of God in how to live as followers of Jesus, the Apostle Paul sent Onesimus back, but sent him with this letter, urging Philemon to forgive Onesimus and to welcome him now as a brother in Christ. As I've been reading through this letter lately over and over again for several weeks now, I've been powerfully struck by the incredibly touchy situation it covers, by its intensely personal tone, and by the remarkable care the Apostle Paul used in putting it all together and choosing his words. In a situation that could be downright explosive, Paul chose his words very carefully. For example, he began by complimenting Philemon for his faith and love, noting, you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. In other words, Paul kind of opens up the saying, dude, you've done some really cool stuff. And he doesn't just say you. Notice he says, you brother, reminding Philemon right out of the gate of their connection, their very real connection together in Christ. When it finally comes time in the letter for the shoe to drop and for Paul to give the hard part of the message, he says, as an apostle, I have every authority to order you to do this, but instead he couches, he presents the shoe as a request, saying, I appeal to you. On the basis of love, I then, as Paul, an an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ. This, Paul says, is who is writing to you. This is how I'm writing to you. This is how I'm appealing to you. As Paul, your brother. Paul, your friend. Paul the apostle, now aged, and writing you from prison. I could go on with example after example from the text of how Paul very carefully chose his words and very carefully worked the structure of it all together, but I think you get the point. In my own life, I've had any number of occasions where I've needed to write very touchy correspondence, often in response to very tricky situations. I'm sure you have as well. And in those situations, I can think about how much time and energy it took to choose my words carefully. Typically, in that kind of situation, when I'm done, I'll give it to somebody else, say, read this and tell me what you think. Before I ever send it out, I'll try to get feedback from other people. I have to be honest with you. I fear that today that sort of careful, thoughtful 
communication is an increasingly lost art. As more and more people, even Christians, take up the habit of firing off angry reactionary texts or tweets or emails or posts, typically without taking the time to think through what they're really saying and what the likely long-term results of it may be. Without a doubt, I am personally convinced that social media is hastening the collapse of polite society and hastening the collapse of our ability to carry on rational discourse, the very sort of rational discourse that is absolutely necessary for the continuance of a free and open society. The bottom line, however, is this. You simply cannot have a civilization if you do not have civility. And I would encourage you to keep that in mind before you shoot off that next text or email or tweet. Sadly, it appears to me that in contemporary American culture, outrage has totally eclipsed rational thought and argument. You don't really need to be right anymore. You just need to be loud. You don't really need to be right anymore. You just need to be passionate Your facts can be totally wrong. Your reasoning can be completely spurious. But if you vent real passion, there's a good chance your rant will still be seen as powerful or provocative or even profound. Just try it. I encourage you to do this little experiment. Sometime later on today, send out a tweet. Something like this. I am concerned the current approach of the Democrats or Republicans you pick on, you pick the issue, is unnecessarily and inappropriately broad. Send that out. And then wait a couple days and send this one out. Those idiot Democrats or Republicans you pick can't seem to sleep until they cram their communist or Nazi you pick ideas down the throats of the rest of us. Send out both those tweets over a period of a couple days and see which one gets you more traffic. Let me give you a case in point from just a couple weeks ago. Beth Moore has become something of a lightning rod as numerous Christians seem to have taken it on more or less as a badge of honor to slam pretty much anything she says or does. So a couple weeks ago, she posted a picture of some grapes from her garden along with this tweet. I'm growing grapes for reals. It's like a miracle. In 50 jillion degree weather, she lives in Texas, if Jesus is trying to get me to have a crush on him, it's working. The vitriolic responses began immediately. This is awful, one person replied. I am really holding my tongue right now, really holding. I hope you repent and grow up. Another person tweeted, Jesus Christ is not your boyfriend or your homeboy. He is your Lord, your Savior, your Creator, your Sustainer, your King, and your God. Beth Moore doesn't have a clue who the true Jesus of the Bible even is. Read the book of Colossians, goodness. Tweets piled on. She began trending on Twitter as tweets piled on using words like toxic, abominable, and blasphemer. It's just a couple weeks ago. And yet another rage-filled social media melee. Sadly, that's not the end of the story. I actually learned about this brouhaha in an online article from a Christian organization in which the author proceeded to castigate the castigators. Albeit in somewhat less shrill and hyperbolic language. It appears that no one on either side of this thing 
took a step back to consider carefully the actual issues expressed and in play. For what it's worth, I'm personally confident that Beth Moore's intent was to highlight the goodness of God in the common grace he pours out in creation and to do that in a sweet, kind of lighthearted way. In my opinion, there's nothing in that tweet worthy of epithets like toxic, abominable, or blasphemer. On the other hand, to be perfectly honest with you, I do worry that an awful lot of contemporary Christians are way too casual with God and the things of God. I shared a little bit about that a few weeks back when we talked about the fear of the Lord. So I think there are two very important things going on here that have value in discussing. My concern is that as the people of God, we ought to be able to talk through such things without getting self-righteous or indignant or screechy. So back to Philemon. In addition to Paul's example of addressing a difficult issue graciously, the book of Philemon also reveals a lot about the crucial crucial role of the church uh, in the lives of the very first Christians. And the first thing you need to understand about this context is that at this time, the church in Colossae was a bit of a mess. And no doubt the situation with Onesimus was making it messier. The truth is, left to themselves, people sometimes make messes. They do it today, it happens today, it happened back then. On occasion, I will hear Christians say silly things, like, we need to be just like the early church, or we need to go back to doing things just like the early church. They idealize and romanticize the early church, but what they really need to do is read the Bible. When people complain about how messed up Christians are today, I like to remind them that in the early church, they were getting drunk at communion, sleeping with their stepmothers, suing each other in court, interrupting each other in church services, as the whole thing was a chaotic mess. They kept flip-flopping back and forth between legalism and license, And their churches were often disruptive and torn apart by divisions, infighting, and petty grievances. When people say, yeah, but but the leaders in the church today are the problem, the leaders in the churches today are so messed up, I remind them that the apostles Paul and Peter told us that in their day, some leaders would worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. Others would ruin whole households. There were those who preached out of selfish ambition and rivalry those who taught confidently things that they had no idea what they were talking about, those who out of greed made up stories and even false prophecies, and those who abused their authority, exploiting people, taking advantage of them, and striking them in the face. This notion that the early church was so much purer and had everything so much more together than the church today is honestly idealistic piffle. It is a notion you will not find in the Bible. The truth is the only reason we have most of the New Testament is because the early church was such a mess that the apostles felt compelled regularly to write letters to try and straighten them out. Listen, neither the lives of the earliest Christians nor the structures they operated under, listen, were given to us in the New Testament as a model to follow. Jesus is given to us in the New Testament as a model to follow. 
the life and teaching of Jesus and the life and teaching of the apostle as they reflect of the apostles as they reflect on the life and teaching of Jesus. Nevertheless, all of that is an aside to my main point. The main thing I want to share with you this morning, which is that the book of Philemon is fundamentally a book about forgiveness and reconciliation. Christians sometimes have a reputation of getting angry, holding grudges, and taking their ball and going home. And the book of Philemon is here to remind you that that's not God's way. God's heart has always been to have a people, not to have you as a person, and not to have a smattering of independent, disconnected people, independent, disconnected individuals, but rather to have a people united together. The desire of God has always been that the people of God live and love and work as one. And since we are broken people, living for the moment in a broken world, that is going to require of us humility, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. People who say they're walking closely with Jesus, they just have nothing to do with the church, don't really understand what they're saying. Because the truth is, Jesus hasn't given them the option of walking closely with him outside the church. And if their excuse is, well, the contemporary church isn't at all what Jesus intended it to be, I remind you, as I just demonstrated from Scripture, neither was the early church. It wasn't an excuse back then, and it's not a valid excuse this morning. Just to drive home that point, let me show you something fascinating about this carefully crafted personal letter the Apostle Paul writes, calling on this prominent guy named Philemon to do something really, really outrageous, a very touchy situation. Look again at how the letter opens. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, comma, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this personal letter to Philemon, calling him to do something unheard of, Paul opens by sending it to the whole church. In the salutation, grace to you, right here in verse 3, the you there in the Greek is plural. In the south, we would translate that grace to y'all. If you're from the north, it might be grace to use guys. But the point is, Paul addresses this letter to the church and its leaders before then going on to speak directly and exclusively to one person, Philemon. In verse 3, he says, grace to y'all and peace from God. But in verse 4, he writes, I always thank my God as I remember you, and there the you has become singular. And from that point on, beginning at verse 4, the rest of the letter is addressed to one person and one person only, Philemon. Paul is writing directly and exclusively to him, although he addresses the letter to the church and its leaders. I want to make sure you get this. 
This is an incredibly personal letter asking an incredibly hard thing from a prominent man in an incredibly touchy situation. It was a letter written directly and personally by the Apostle Paul, which means he didn't even use a scribe for this. He wrote it himself. And yet he also addressed it to Philemon's church and its leaders. It's kind of like being CC'd on an important email today. And that ought to impress upon you the crucial place the local church held, the powerful role the local church played in the daily lives of the very first Christians. So let me just say this flat out again. You cannot be biblically connected to Jesus without also being connected to his church. He's not given you that option. And if people want to complain that church people have hurt them, that's honestly kind of the crux of the letter to Philemon. Because at its core, it is a letter about forgiveness and reconciliation. And forgiveness only ever applies in situations where you feel you've been hurt or wronged. Stop for just a moment and imagine the tension surrounding this letter. The people involved were all part of a small Christian community in Colossae, a community already in distress because some false teachers had gotten in and thrown them into a bit of confusion. That was the purpose of Paul's letter to the Colossians, a letter which was probably accompanied by the letter to Philemon. Adding to the confusion, no doubt, was the new situation with Onesimus. Philemon was obviously a wealthy and prominent member of the church in Colossae who had been betrayed, robbed, and embarrassed by Onesimus, something probably certainly known to everyone in that small, tight-knit community. Without a doubt, his pride and reputation were on the line. Forgiving Onesimus in a situation like that was simply unheard of in the prevailing culture of the day. Additionally, it's clear from this letter that Philemon had been a financial supporter of the work of the Apostle Paul, and apparently a pretty significant one. So what does that mean? It means in going back, Onesimus was risking his life. Philemon was risking the respect of his peers. And the Apostle Paul was risking, if everything didn't go the way he hoped, Paul was risking further fracturing, fracturing this broken church, losing one of his best supporters, and quite possibly being personally responsible for Onesimus's, sending Onesimus to his death. When I said earlier this was a touchy situation, that was a massive understatement. So again, when, when, when folk want to complain that church people have hurt them, that they've violated covenant with them, that they've betrayed them or taken advantage of them, that they've broken their trust or disappointed them, God answers those complaints with the letter of Philemon. Because, Philemon, uh, because Onesimus did all those things. And Paul wrote to Philemon calling him to forgive, calling him to welcome Onesimus back now as a dearly loved and trusted brother. Please do not miss the reality of this. From absolutely everything we know of this situation, the fault was entirely on Onesimus. There's not a hint anywhere in Paul's letter that Philemon is somehow partly to blame. Onesimus violated his oath, betrayed the family trust, 
abused the access he had in the home in order to steal or rob from him, embarrassed Philemon, and broke the law. And Paul's proposed solution to all of that is for Philemon to forgive it all. That he forgive the betrayal, the crime, the embarrassment, and the theft. And further, that he welcome Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but now as a loved and trusted brother. In case you didn't really catch what I said, that means in the solution the Apostle Paul proposes here, Onesimus did everything wrong, and Philemon was called on to pay for all of it. Because that is what forgiveness does. That is what forgiveness is. And that is how forgiveness works. Even in terms of what Onesimus stole, the Apostle Paul calls on Philemon not to require repayment. Now he offers, if need be, to pay it back himself. But he also makes it pretty clear that he's really asking Philemon to forgive it and let it go. That's exactly what he means when he writes, I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. you got to love it when he says, not to mention all the stuff you owe me in the context of mentioning all the stuff you owe me. One last thought. We don't know what Onesimus knew about the content of Paul's letter. When Paul told him to go back and make things right, I suspect he had no idea what Paul was actually asking of Philemon. And frankly, it would have been wrong for Paul to tell him. Onesimus needed to go back, not because he thought he was going to get off the hook, but because it was the right thing to do. And the truth of the matter is, Philemon's response or his potential response should not have weighed in to Onesimus' decision. So in conclusion... From a 30,000-foot perspective, the book of Philemon, this book of the Bible, is a book about forgiveness and reconciliation. It reveals God's expectation that every single one of us function together with the rest of the church, meaningfully connected with the people of God, even when it's hard, even when it costs you, and in spite of all the flaws and failings you find there. So as I close this morning, I just need to ask you, how are you doing this morning at forgiveness and reconciliation? How are you doing this morning at loving the church, warts and all? How are you doing this morning at seeing things legitimately wrong in other people? and loving them anyway. How are you doing this morning at moving past hurts and offenses? Because I am convinced from the book of Philemon, if you're not doing well, God is calling you to repent. Having said that, let me add one final thought. If you're here and you know now, there's someone you haven't really, really forgiven. You need to settle that with the Lord in your heart before you come to Holy Communion because Jesus makes that instruction to you. And if there's anyone here you really think you have forgiven, 
but you've not made any effort at reconciliation. I would encourage you to work on that this week. Philemon, shortest letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote. One of the most powerful, profound, and difficult messages you will find in the Bible. Forgive and be reconciled. Whatever they've done, eat it. Pay for it. Move on. Now, there are all kinds of situations, and I understand Paul didn't write to all of them. He wrote to this one. And uh, you may well have a situation that is different than that. I would just encourage you to check with God and make sure it really is all that different before you excuse not forgiving and not being reconciled. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. Your word that shows us who you are, your word that shows us who we are called and created to be. Your word that instructs, encourages, and reproves us, that guides and leads us. Lord, what a great gift. What a precious gift. We thank you, thank you, thank you for it. Father, I pray for us today that we would be a people united, a people who walk as one, a people knit together, connected together with your people as a people, not merely as a room full of individuals. I pray where that's been difficult, that you would provide grace and help. Lord, where there's healing needed, I pray you provide healing. That lead us, O Lord, into the things you want us to be in, into the lives you want us to lead. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.